Our Father in heaven, we thank and praise you that your word is true, and your word is life, and your word is good, and your word is a message of love. And so we pray today we'd hear you speak. You'd speak into our hearts. You'd speak to us corporately as a church. You'd speak to us individually at where we're at. And as we hear your voice, you'd fix our eyes on Jesus for his name's sake. Amen. Now, getting the uh, kids back into the school run can be hard work. And to be fair to them, that's largely because you've spent the last six weeks training them to quietly play in their room with their toys when they wake up. In our household, deep psychological training goes on so that the children, the small ones, only want breakfast at nine o'clock in their pajamas. And then suddenly the beginning of a term arrives and you're running around like a, a mad person, not sure why the school PE bag is not where you certainly left it. And you can't understand why they're sitting contentedly in their room playing Lego. And they're struggling, well, why suddenly do you want me to not play and get downstairs in my school uniform for breakfast? And the problem is you're desperate to try and get them out the door, but, but every time you let them out of their, your sight, they settle down with a new toy, and they start playing again. And they're totally unmoved by your frenetic activity and stress. It's possible, isn't it, to, to not understand what's really important at a, a given moment in time. What's, what's the particular priority now? Some teenagers managed, sadly, to do that in the run-up to their GCSEs and A-levels. Some people have lost their lives by their refusal to see what matters the most. In Florida, now, there are people whose lives are at threat because they feel that protecting their property is more important than getting into a shelter to save their life. There are people who've suffered major illness because that, that pain that kept coming in their stress wasn't important as finishing that contract in the workplace. We sometimes miss what really matters at a moment in time. Now, the Bible is God's commentary on not just our times, but on all time. It's the commentary of what God has done and what he is doing, and what he will do. So if we want to know what matters in our time, of course the Bible is the place that we need to come. It shows us where we fit in to God's calendar. What is vital for him at this period in time? And I want to tell you this morning, we live in the most wonderful period in the history of the world as we know it. If the history of the world were a block of flats, we're in the penthouse. If it was a sports match, we're on the halfway line. We can see everything that's going on. If it was a, a seat in the theater, we're in the royal box of time. We're in an extraordinary privileged period in the history of the world according to God. Come with me to Matthew 9 and see why. Have a look at Matthew 9 and verse 35. We read this. Jesus went through all the towns and villages teaching in their synagogues proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and illness. You see, we live in the time of God's King, Jesus Christ. The King has come. And just have a look in Matthew 9, in this account of his life, this historical account of his life, what Jesus has been doing. In chapter 8, if you have a look back over the page, you'll see he heals a man with leprosy. 
a fatal disease of the day that made you an outcast. People wouldn't want anything to do with you. But Jesus shows that he's not just willing to touch this man, but he has the power to cleanse him from this illness forever. We find him there next with a centurion, a member of the hated occupying Roman army, despised by the local population. And yet this man's seen enough of Jesus to know that Jesus only has to say a word and his servant will be healed. And that's exactly what happens. Have a look at chapter 8 and verse 16 as Matthew summarizes for us what Jesus has done that day. When evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him and he drove out the spirits with a word and he healed all who were ill. See, God's king has come. That's, that's what the gospels record for us. That, that at a time in Galilee 2,000 years ago, that there was a period when all the hospital wards were empty when every A and E department, there wasn't a queue in any single one of them because no one needed to go to them. A time when there wasn't a siren heard on the streets. And it wasn't just that illness was eradicated. If you you read on into Matthew 9 and 10, you'll see nature is tamed. No hurricanes in Galilee then. And evil is driven out with a word. It was the time when the Son of God walked the earth And he didn't just show us who he is. He demonstrated what the kingdom he was bringing in is going to be like. You see, here Jesus shows us the end game of God's plan. God's king comes, and as he walks the earth, we get a taster of the kingdom that he's going to bring in when he returns finally. It's the kingdom of heaven. This is the world that will be forever through God's son, Jesus Christ. C.S. Lewis wonderfully illustrates this in his book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. It's picked up beautifully in the film that was done a few years ago. That as the great lion, Aslan, who represents the Lord Jesus, initially comes and he walks through the white witch's cold, frozen, bitter kingdom of hatred, the ice melts. Flowers come into bloom. Animals that have been previously frozen by her, killed, come to life. But, but as he goes on, it, it refreezes behind him. Wherever Aslan is, is a taster of that final, beautiful, perfect kingdom that he is going to bring in. And the same with Jesus here. This is the kingdom of the king. Now, now what sort of world do you think people want? Surely it's a, a world without sickness, a world without sadness, a world without natural disasters, a world without evil, a world without death. That was the world that people tasted around the person of Jesus. See, it's no, it's no coincidence that's the world our hearts ache for because that is the world we were created to enjoy. A world where Jesus is our rightful king. And that is the world that he'll bring in when he returns to judge. But first, first, what does God do? He sends his son in his mercy and love to make it possible for us to come into that kingdom. He sends his son to forgive sin. That's what he does in Matthew 9. To deal with the way that we don't deserve to be in that world because we've rejected our loving creator. See, the kingdom of heaven is not just good news because of the beauty of the life we'll enjoy in it. It's good news because of the love of the God who gives it to us. Jesus can only proclaim this kingdom because at the end of Matthew's gospel, he's going to go to the cross And there he is going to die our death in our place. He's going to take upon 
himself all that we have done that means we deserve to be shut out of the presence of a perfect world, not welcomed into it. And do you believe that? If, if you're not a Christian yet here this morning, this is what Jesus Christ is all about. It's about coming to him as your king, to, to be a member of his kingdom now and forever. And the way that you come to him as your kingdom king is, is you admit, Lord, I'm part of the problem, not part of the solution in our world. I'm part of the problem in my life. But just as Russ and Katie were saying, you don't look around and go, they're the problem, they're the problem, they're the problem, whether that's on the news or in your house. You go, no, I'm, I'm the problem. And therefore, Lord, I need you to work in my heart because you're the only solution. You're the king who's come to die for me, Lord Jesus. And if you are a Christian here today, I hope you, you realize that this is the news. The news of the kingdom of heaven. This is the thing. This is the reason for today, and it is the hope for tomorrow. God's king has come. Jesus has done everything so that we can enter into his kingdom. And therefore, what does he do? What does he do having shown this beautiful world over eight and nine of Matthew's gospel, having called people into his kingdom that they might have their sins forgiven? He, he says, look, these are my priorities. That's what we have next. And three things that we see here in the priorities of the Lord Jesus. The first is his compassion for helpless people. Look at verse 36. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. This is a, a gut-wrenching compassion. The word used suggests a deep, deep distress. And you'll know compassion comes actually in the Latin from the word com, with, and passion to feel, to suffer with. So the perfect son of God looks out on the crowds and he's deeply distressed. He draws alongside them emotionally in their suffering. We might say he's heartbroken by what he sees. And that actually is extraordinary when you consider who's in the crowd around Jesus and Matthew. It's the people of God, the Jews of the Old Testament, Israel. And if you read the first half of the Bible, the Old Testament, you'll know the only way these people have distinguished themselves in history is by the way that they have ignored this God. The way that they've thrown God's goodness back in his face. The way that they've used his his faithfulness is an excuse for their disobedience. The way they've acknowledged his warnings. The way that they would not listen to the Lord who loves them. I mean, that, that's why they're actually harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. I mean, the Lord's always been their shepherd. He's always been there for them. We, we sang, didn't we, Psalm 23. It's one of the most beautiful, if not one of the most famous chapters of the Bible, Psalm 23. What does it tell us? Well, the Lord has always been the sort of shepherd who takes his people into beautiful pastures, who, who's always wanted to give them rest beside quiet waters, who, who's guided them in the right way to go, who's even been willing to walk through illness and difficulty and death with them and take them to a beautiful future. That's the sort of shepherd the Lord is. But Israel, they didn't want him. And yet Jesus looks out on people who've rejected him for centuries and he is a gut-wrenching compassion for them. His heart is broken for them. Well, what do you like at a feeling compassion for the people who wind you up? The people who wrong you? I, I've been asking people to pray this week that I'd have compassion on the older of my two sisters because 
when I, when I get into the same room as her, emotionally, I return to being 12. I just, I just want to win. I just want to be proven right. I just want to get my own way. But just emotionally, I don't engage with where she is lost to the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, we can struggle to have compassion, can't we? We've struggled with compassion of the person who, who parks inconsiderately in our street. We've struggled with compassion of the person who cuts in with an enormous trolley just before us in the queue in Lidl as we're getting to the till. We struggle to have compassion for the person at work who's clearly being a bit slimy and buttering up the boss as that promotion comes along. Our hearts just struggle to go out to other people. But the Lord Jesus is the compassionate king. His love knows no bounds. In fact, Jesus is the only person, isn't he, who's ever had the right to look down on everyone. I mean, he was perfect. We, we're not just slightly worse than him. Our hearts are evil where his was beautifully good. He could look down on everyone, but he didn't. No, that's not his nature. Uh, so he looks out and he loves the people who've hated him for centuries. That's, that's the Lord's attitude to you this morning, by the way. You know that, don't you? The God you've rejected doesn't, doesn't look down to condemn you. He stoops down to embrace you in love in the person of his Son. And we'll only be amazed by God's attitude to us like that if, if we see what we're really like, harassed and helpless. See, harassed... Uh, it's not, it's not that sort of slightly stressed state. You know, it's not that these are sheep that could be sorted out by aromatherapy in a bath with scented candles, okay? The harassed comes from a word that's to do with flayed, to do with being whipped and flesh being stripped from your back. That, that's the sort of image of being harassed here. And helpless, that, that means Scattered. So the picture is a, a flock where the wolves have gone in amongst them and, and some are bleeding and, and some are dying in front of our eyes and they're scattered over the hillside. That, that's what it is to be harassed and helpless. Well, we came home from Wales on holiday by, by a different route this year and it took us over some beautiful open mountainside. And uh, if you've been to Wales, you know often the sheep roam over the mountainside. They uh, don't have any fences to take them in and this, this road had no fences on it. So if, uh, if Larry the lamb fancied a bit of grass on this side of the major road, he just slowly walked across the middle of it, totally oblivious to, to any of the traffic. And that caused the car in front to slam on the brakes from time to time. Being a Welshman, I just thought, keep going, mate. He'll get out of the way. It was the point I thought that. My kids pointed out the dead sheep carcass beside the road where someone had hit it. And that's what sheep are like without a shepherd. You know, they just wander all over the place until someone smashes into them. And that, that's humanity without Christ. That, that's you and me in our own strength and our own wisdom. That, that's the world we've created. That's the state of the everyone we meet who's not yet a Christian. Oh, we may not see them like that. They, they almost certainly won't see themselves like that. But that's what they're like harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd, wandering off from God, experiencing self-inflicted pain and distress. And Jesus has compassion on them. So I think, I think our danger in terms of compassion is sometimes we don't think people need compassion. 
So we assume that behind the gated driveways of sort of Claygate and Oxshot live happier people because they've got the house we want. I did some training recently uh, to help with thinking through domestic abuse. And one of the things that, that came out of the training, that in domestic abuse in Surrey, that actually it's rife in homes where you have to walk a quarter of a mile to put your bin out or get your housekeeper to put the bin out. Money doesn't stop men beating their husbands. No, no, everyone needs compassion. People are harassed and helpless without the Lord Jesus. Some people we don't have compassion on because actually we look down on them. They, they don't break our hearts. They, they irritate us. We can get all sort of superior. Christians are great at doing this. Also sort of superior about the, the dreadful state of our society. We look down, therefore, on the sexually promiscuous or, or the hardened atheist. We, we don't pity them. We don't look out on our nation and think, oh, what, a, what a dreadful state for people to be living in, in a nation increasingly where God is giving us over to the lust of our hearts, where uh, as the safeguard of uh, just a lip service to his word is being removed, what we see is carnage in the country around us. We don't look down on them. We just feel slightly better about ourselves. We forget that actually that would be exactly the course of our lives, self-deluded, doing what we think is best, unless someone had compassion on us, unless someone had shared Jesus with us. So, so we need to pray. We need to pray we wouldn't, wouldn't be high-handed and condemn people, a bit like the religious leaders of Jesus' day did, the Pharisees. We wouldn't be self-righteous like that. But rather we'd have a heartfelt compassion for people who reject us, belittle us, hate us for following Christ, genuinely inconvenience our lives, that we'd look out on them and we'd have a heartfelt compassion for them, for anyone and everyone who doesn't know the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the uh, most moving things of our, our prayer meetings over this last week has been hearing people force prayers out through the tears of their broken hearts over lost friends and family. Did you care enough for others to join us in, in praying? Maybe can you make maybe a morning this week? I know a lot of people can't. They leave for work earlier. But can, you, can you snatch 20 minutes between 6.30 and 7.30 a.m. just to come and pray this week? Because look at what Jesus says now as that compassion drives him. Look what he says. It's the second thing. It's his command to pray for workers. His command to pray for workers. Look at verse 37 with me. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Now, now I think if um, I'd written verse 37 38, if I'd been Jesus, which is a terrifying prospect for everyone, if I'd, I'd written these verses, they'd say something like, so you disciples better get out there and do something about it. Or... Jesus wrote a new course designed to be accessible to the lost sheep of Israel. Or perhaps when Jesus prayed, first and foremost, he'd pray for the hearts of the people who are lost. He'd say, please, Lord, would you bring them to me? But, but that's not what he does. You see, when filled with compassion for broken people, the first thing Jesus does is he commands his disciples to pray for workers to go into his harvest field. His harvest field. 
Did you see the stunning assumption in verse 27? This is so contrary, I think, to the way we think a lot of the time. Look at verse 37. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Do you see the implication of that? There's no shortage of people out there ready to become followers of Jesus Christ. The harvest is plentiful. That's who the harvest are, people who are ripe to follow Jesus, to become Christians. We've sort of changed the picture, haven't we, from sheep, from livestock to to arable harvest. We did quite a lot of driving around this summer, and I always find those those fields of golden corn, you know, the the rolling English countryside. It's rather beautiful. And then you see as August goes on that the farmer realizes now's the time for the harvest. He gets the enormous combine harvester, and the harvest is taken in. The plentiful harvest is reaped. And that's the image here. As Jesus looks out on these harassed and helpless people, as he looks out on the broken society around him, as he looks out upon a country occupied by a foreign superpower, he doesn't lose hope. He doesn't see sort of a bunch of hopeless, lost reprobates and feel slightly better about himself. He sees person upon person upon person upon person ready to come into loving relationship with him. He sees people who, under the power of the gospel, will have their lives turned upside down. He he sees opportunity where I think sometimes we only see hardness. And the only problem, says Jesus, is we've got a labor shortage, a shortage of people who will go and and get this plentiful harvest in. So I'm going to pray. I'm telling you now, pray for workers. That's what he says in verse 38, isn't it? Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. That's a command. It's to his first disciples here, but but it's to us as well. Ask the Lord of the harvest. And of course we can ask, because Jesus is the Lord of the harvest. They're his people, living in his world. So he has the power and authority to bring them into his flock. It's his harvest. He rules over it. What he wants his followers to do is take the message out. Jesus will gather his people But he tells us, pray for people who will go out and take my message into the world. You see, you all live in places of plentiful harvest. Down your street are people who are ready to come into the kingdom of the Lord Jesus. There is nowhere in the Bible where God has any problem in saving his people. Even even if you live in uh, Selwood Road or Somerset Avenue or Devon Way, what we call the Bible Belt of Chessington, the majority of people in your street don't know Jesus. And there are loads there ready to come in. So so what we need is the Lord of the harvest to boot some people into the harvest field. Because that word send out in chapter 9 verse 38 really is cast out, throw out. It's the same word in chapter 10 verse 1 when he drives out the demons. This is Jesus compelling people, forcing them, giving them the right boot of encouragement out into the harvest field through his great love. There was an article in my news review magazine the week, um, just at the end of it, Saving Lives and Losing Faith, Confessions of a Junior Doctor. It's by a junior doctor called Rachel Clark. She comes from a family of doctors. She's not a Christian. Her father and grandfather trod the same path that she's now treading. And she talks about the drama of the job, the urgency. 
Uh, Here's a quote from the article. It's a crash call. We're told not to run to these, but someone in the distance might be dying. Strolling to their bedside doesn't feel an option. So I'm panting and cursing that the cardiology ward is located so far away from the rest of the hospital. It's 4 a.m. I head towards the flimsy NHS curtains where the hubbub of voices is panicky and too loud. I steady myself, then draw back the curtain. Three or four nurses surround a young man whose face is stricken with fear. He stops me in my tracks. His eyes, glazed with panic, briefly meet mine. And to my relief, the rest of the crash team arrives, and we set about trying to save his life. Despite the expertise, the chest compression so brutal that we hear the crunching, breaking of his ribs, nothing we do is enough. Losing a teenager is desperate. I trudge back down the corridor. His dying face will haunt me for some time. And she observes this about our country and about our NHS. Some things never change. Some patient, same patients, same diseases, same distress at bad deaths. And she says that the difference today is that the pressure is killing the system. And what the NHS desperately needs, we all know what the NHS desperately needs. We call it money, but actually it's more doctors and more nurses, more trained staff working together, doing the best they can to save lives. And because the Lord Jesus sees people as they really are, because he looks out and he sees people, whether they, they live in the house you want or whether they just live in poverty and you slightly pity them, he sees them and he sees that all of them are in spiritual cardiac arrest. In fact, the Bible says it's worse than that. They're spiritually dead. But we have a miracle-working God who brings dead people to life. Because he looks out and sees people like that, he can only do one thing. He tells his followers, pray that workers will be sent to that harvest field. Because, of course, that the man Jesus Christ can only be in one place at one time, but the risen Lord Jesus, exalted to heaven, pours out his spirit upon his followers, his people, his church, and they, therefore, can take this life-giving message to the whole world. Workers all over the globe today taking the message of Jesus to harassed and helpless people. And that's why we've, we've started with a, a fortnight of prayer this sort of academic year. And I'm hoping it'll spill over into a month of prayer, into a year of prayer, into a lifetime of prayer for people to go into the lost world of Chessington, to, to people to go to the harassed and helpless of London, to, to people to go to the desperately needy of the world, those who do not yet have Christ, and to tell them of him. You see, Jesus' starting point as he looks on the needy people around him is not to pray for the hearts of the lost, it's to pray for the hearts of the found. That they would be changed, that they might take the message to the lost. I wonder if uh, the disciples here enjoyed a, a sort of a brief moment of relief. <laughs> Thank goodness. He wants us to pray. For a nasty moment there, I thought he was going to ask us to do something about it. But, but that's not what happens. What happens when you pray? Does it? Gareth already mentioned this. So often when you pray for something, at the same time what the Lord does is, is he lays it upon your heart. He turns you into the solution of your prayer. And that's exactly what happens to the disciples here. Because this is the last thing. Just briefly, look at what happens next. It's the commission 
to proclaim the kingdom. It's why I've included chapter 10 and verse 1. Jesus called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and illness. See, prayer is the bridge from compassion to commission, from longing for others to know Christ to being sent to share Christ with them. And so what happens here is the Lord of the harvest gives his disciples exactly the same authority as he has had. And if you see that, you see in verse 9 and 35, we see what Jesus has been doing, and then he commissions the disciples to go and do exactly what he's been doing. They're set out to multiply his ministry. And that's what we find happening in chapter 10 and verses 5 and 6. After the naming of the twelve, these twelve Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. Go to these harassed and helpless I see around me. Now we're not the twelve. We're not living in Israel. But, but at the end of Matthew's gospel, this commission to go to the lost is made global. As Jesus famously tells his followers to go and make disciples of all nations. See, Jesus calls them to pray for the Lord of the harvest to send out workers. Then he makes them the answer to their own prayer. He sends them out. He empowers them and commissions them on the most privileged task that anyone has in the history of the world. Because it's the most important task that anyone's ever been given in the history of the world. The proclamation of the kingdom of heaven. And it's the most beautiful task that anyone's ever been given in the history of the world because there is nothing more beautiful than Jesus' kingdom. It's perfect. And it's the most honorable task, the most privileged task that anyone has ever been given in the history of the world because no one is more glorious than King Jesus. And we are the workers that we're praying for. In one way, what we pray is we pray for people to be sent out is, Lord Jesus, please so move me by your love that as I see harassed and helpless people, I will go to them. Please drive me out. Please boot me out to share you with others. You see, it's it's as you see Christ's compassion for the lost, as, as you see his great love for you and for others, and that moves you for people to go to them and then that changes you to become one of those people. We're going to look more next week at what it means to be a person, to, to go with the message of Jesus. But, but isn't this a beautiful thing to be part of? Because the King has come. The world that everyone wants is going to be a reality in the future. He's given a a taster, a trailer of it in the past. He's done everything in love to make it possible for you and for anyone who will come to him. So will you have a deep compassion on those for whom the future is not that kingdom? The future is the dreadful judgment of God. And for those who are harassed and helpless, because they don't know the Lord Jesus, They don't know the love of God shown in him. Will you have compassion on them? Will you pray for people to go? Will you go? Let's pray together.
maybe just in the quiet, ask the Lord to give you his compassion for lost people. Maybe there's a a particular individual who basically just winds you up. I want to pray to have compassion upon them. Our Father, in the light of what we see of the Lord Jesus, our beautiful King of love, the one who has perfect compassion even on those who've despised and rejected him. Our Father, please make us those with heartfelt compassion for the lost. Help us to see people as they really are. And help us to pray, to pray that you, using us, would take the message, the message of the Lord Jesus Christ, to them, that they might come to their good shepherd, the one who lays down his life for the sheep. And we pray it for Jesus' name's sake. Amen.